Yesterday uh, was obviously uh, July 4th, and uh, I was born, uh, my parents had always highlighted to me that I'm a bicentennial baby. Uh, so I was born uh, right at the beginning in January of the year that our country was celebrating 200 years. And so I've always been able, i always known exactly how old uh, our country is, because it's my age plus 200, and even I can do that math, all right? That, that's uh, pretty simple math for me. And so I just wanted to take a minute and uh, uh, wish America, you know, a happy, a happy birthday. Uh, yesterday you were uh, 200 and <coughs> years old, um, and uh, happy birthday. So uh, let's pray together, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day. Uh, we thank you uh, for this series uh, that you've laid on our hearts to, to study the concept of love all throughout the Bible. And uh, I really uh, feel like our, our culture and our, our nation and we as a people really need this. So help us to, that, uh, to embed it into our hearts and into our minds. We again thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. An 85-year-old uh, couple, they had been married like 60 years, uh, died together in a car accident, and they'd been in really good health the last 10 years of their life, mainly to the wife's insistence that they eat healthy and uh, do the right things and exercise and all that stuff. And when they reached the pearly gates, uh, Peter is there to greet them, as is true in any good preacher joke. Um, and so Peter is there uh, to greet them, and he says, hey, I want to uh, kind of walk you around and just show you around a little bit. And so he takes them to their mansion. And uh, this place is just gorgeous. It's beautiful, an incredible uh, kitchen and a master bath suite and a jacuzzi and just all of this stuff. And the couple, they kind of oohed and odd. And then uh, the husband, who was a little more frugal, said, so what's this going to cost me? He says, no, you don't understand. It doesn't cost you anything. It's free. It's heaven. It's your mansion. So then they took him over to the golf course and the most beautiful golf course you can imagine. And the golf course changed every day to be a new course, one of the best courses in the world. And the husband, again, was just kind of blown away. He said, what are the golf fees for, for this place? And they said, no, you don't understand. It's free. It's, it's heaven. This is, you know, heaven's kind of gift to you. And then they went to the buffet at, at the golf course, and it was just uh, a, a incredible spread, all kinds of food and all kinds of dessert and all this stuff. And he says, well, how much to eat? The husband again, he says, no, I, man, you're not getting this. It's heaven and it's free. He says, what, what about like the low cholesterol table, the low calorie table? And he says, well, Peter says, this is the best part. You can eat as much as you want, whatever you want, and you never gain weight, you never have health problems, you never get sick. Uh, it, it's heaven and, it, and it's all free. And the old man just flew into a fit of rage. He's yelling at his wife, he's throwing down his hat. They're both trying to calm him down. And they say, what on earth is wrong? And the man turns to his wife and said, we could have been here 10 years ago if it wasn't for your brand muffins. Um, and uh, open your Bibles if you have them to 1 Peter 4. I want you to think about just for a minute, if you knew the end was near, right? If you knew the end of all things, the end of your life, I know that's a little bit morbid, but what would you do if you knew you were super close to the end? How would you live? A lot of us think that we would do kind of a bucket list thing, that we would travel to a location that we'd always wanted to travel and we would take the vacation of a lifetime. Or we would go into huge amounts of debt and buy the most expensive car that we could because who cares about debt, right? And, and uh, in that moment, and buy a car and just go as fast as you want. We'd eat our dream meal. We'd do something extravagant. Uh, most of us think that we would do kind of a bucket list item if we knew the end was coming. And here's what I think. 
I suspect if we really knew the end was near, I suspect most of us would do something with our loved ones. We would take a relational step, not visit an exotic location. We would give something, not buy something. We would spend time with each other, not as much time on the beach. I suspect that most of us would do something, if we really knew the end was near, most of us would do something relationally. We would take a step of love, not a step of extravagance. And this is Peter's point uh, in, in 1 Peter 4, and it is no surprise to me that uh, Peter writes this. Um, Peter, uh, if you remember kind of Peter's story, when Jesus was walking around on the earth, Jesus had kind of a relationship with the multitudes. There's a lot of stories where Jesus is interacting with the multitudes. And then there was a group of 12, his disciples, that Jesus spent even more time. Uh, And then within the 12, there were three. Three really close friends to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. There's actually a story in your New Testament in the book of Matthew where Jesus is transfigured. And I want to read it to you because it's an interesting story. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just imagine being there for a minute. Just then, what appeared, just then before them appeared Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This is a story you would tell for the rest of your life. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. Let's make a week of it, right? And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well, well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Can you imagine being there for that scene? That kind of catching this glimpse of Jesus and all his glory. Here's what I want you to see in the story. Not all of the disciples experienced it. It was Peter, James, and John. So Peter was in this kind of tight-knit relational group with, with Jesus. He had a close relationship to Jesus. He had a close relationship with the other disciples. And so when he is going to write to us about the end of all things... And that, that's what he's going to write about in this text. When he writes about the end of all things, he says, listen, the thing I want to be, remind you of is love. And as the end draws near, we want to be sure to love one another well. Let's read the text, starting in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, above all this, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is near, Peter writes. Do you know what year Peter wrote that? Somewhere between 65 and 68 AD. He wrote it in the 60s, not the 1960s, the literal 60s, right? That Peter believed in somewhere between 65 and 68 that the end of all things was near. Now let me, let me set up the history just a little bit because I love, 
I love diving into this history stuff, but this was right around the time of the great fire of Rome. There came a time in history where Rome essentially burned to the ground and almost everybody believes that Nero, who's uh, the emperor at the time, that Nero started the great fire of Rome. Say, why on earth would Nero do that? The dude was crazy. I mean, I could give you example after example. I'm gonna read to you just a little bit, but Nero was crazy. And so Nero started to be blamed for the great fire of, of Rome and Nero didn't like it. He didn't like it one bit, one bit. And so what Nero started to do is he started uh, placing blame on the Christians uh, that were living in Rome at the time. And one of the great worldwide persecutions of Christians happened because Nero did not want to accept blame, do blame, by the way, most historians agree that Nero set the fire. Um, that, that he didn't want to accept blame. And so a worldwide persecution of Christians um, b- began. And let me read to you what one historian said about this time. He said, besides being put to death, they, meaning the Christians, were made to serve as objects of Nero's amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others were set on fire to illuminate the night when the daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and also putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people and dressed as a charioteer or drove them about in his chariot. So essentially what this is describing is a time in history where Nero started a human circus and the the object of amusement were the Christians that he blamed for the fire because he didn't want to accept responsibility. And he had them torn apart by dogs. He had them crucified. He had them set on fire. Nero was absolutely crazy. And it's when this text is written, it was in the middle of all this. And later John writes his revelation text in the middle of Domitian who comes after Nero. Uh, and so in the middle of these texts that, that talk about the end of the world, there was a belief in the, amongst the Christians that Jesus will not put up with this for long. Jesus will surely not put up with this for long. He's not going to allow Nero to do this. He's not going to allow Domitian to do this. He is going to come back soon, and he didn't come back. 2,000 years have passed. And listen, people for the last 2,000 years have been trying to predict the second coming of Christ. You heard it during the Obama administration. You heard it during the Trump administration. Whoever's elected next, you you will hear it during their administration that the end is near. Listen, we don't know when he's coming back. I find the predictions to be almost humorous that we're told in the Bible that Jesus doesn't even know when he's returning, yet a blogger in Ohio does, right? I'm I'm not buying it that Jesus doesn't even know when he's going to return, but we know that there will come a time where God has had enough. And it didn't happen during Nero, and it didn't happen during Domitian, but at some point it will happen, and he will have enough, and he will turn to Jesus, and he will say, I've had enough, and Jesus will not return as a baby. He's going to return with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. And he is going to return. We know he's going to return. And you know why Peter can, with all intellectual honesty, write in 65 to 68 AD that the end of all things is here. You know how Peter can write that with intellectual honesty? Is that from God's perspective, the end of all things is near. That God has lived for all of eternity. 
What exactly is 2,000 years to God? The Bible says to God, a thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. So to God, from the time of Jesus until now, from God's perspective, it's been two days. So when Peter writes, the end of all things is near, the end of all things is near, but it's in God's timing. And at some point, God will have enough and he will return in his right, in all righteousness to judge the living and the dead. Now, here's why this is so important, all, all of what I've said. I think biblically, there's a better question to ask than when. We, we want to know when, and we evaluate the signs, and we evaluate the leaders, and we evaluate all of this stuff going on with Israel, and because we want to know when he's going to return. Nobody knows, right? I mean, if, if he didn't return during Nero, if he didn't re return during Domitian, I wouldn't even want to predict when he's going to return. Who can predict it? It's in his timing and in his way. And so I think there's a better question to ask than when, and the question Peter asks is how. How should we live? In light of that day that's coming, the, 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 the day that Jesus returns, and we know he's going to return, we know at some point it will be enough, we know that someday he's going to come and usher us into a new heaven and a new earth, a new earth. in light of all that, how should we live in light of the return of our Savior? Now, this is not the only passage that talks about this. There's another passage that I want to show you that the Apostle Paul wrote, and he's going to talk about how as the days unfold and the return of Jesus begins to happen, there's going to be a whole other group of people outside of Christ that live a different way. And here's what Paul says in, first, in 2 Timothy 3. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Can you believe that? Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, that, that always seemed out of place to me, but anyway, uh, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. So Paul, in conjunction with Peter here, what they're teaching us as followers of Jesus, we are called to be different. That as the end days unfold, many people will be lovers of themselves. Many people will be lovers of money. They will be unholy, without love. And here is Peter's point, not so with you. And not so with me. Because we have been changed and transformed by the love of our Savior so we don't fall into the 2 Timothy 3 camp where we are unholy, ungrateful, boastful, lovers of money, lovers of ourselves. Instead, we fit into the Peter camp, the, what Peter writes. Let me reread it for you. The end of all things is near. Just compare it to the last text. Therefore, be, so, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We're not lovers of selves, we're lovers of others. 
right? We're not lovers of money, we're lovers of generosity, right? We're not ungrateful, our hearts abound with thanksgiving. We're generous, we're kind, we're loving because we have been changed and transformed by the love of our Savior. So how do we live, Peter says? Obviously we pray, we pray about everything. But I love how Peter says this, above all, above prayer? What is above prayer? What could be more important than prayer? Above all, Peter says, love one another deeply. Above all, pray. Uh, above even prayer, love one another deeply. And for the rest of the text, he's gonna unfold what this type of love looks like. He says this love, first of all, it covers over a multitude of sins. When you hear that phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, your mind probably goes to the work of Jesus on the cross, that he saw you and I in our sins, and he chose to go to the cross to pay for our sins so that we could have the relationship with God we were created to have in this, next, in this life and in the next, that his love covers our sins. Now, obviously, our love doesn't have the same redemptive power that Jesus' love has, and Jesus' forgiveness says that I don't have the power to forgive sins on behalf of God, right? Only Jesus can do that. He's the high priest. That only Jesus can, can, can forgive sins on God's behalf. But here's what it does teach me is that we are able to love the sinners in our life, just like God has loved us in our sin. We are able to forgive them when they've done wrong to us. Here's the lesson when, when we talk about love covering a multitude of sins, a person's sin does not keep us from loving them. Love covers a multitude of sins. A person's sin does not keep us from loving them. And our culture is losing touch with this idea at an alarming rate. That I may disagree with you, and you may disagree with me. We may have a difference of opinion. You may be from one side of the political aisle and I may be on the other. You may have one set of values and I may have another, but I am still called to love you. And you are still called to love me. This is how radical the love of Jesus is. While we were still sinners, while we were in our sin, Christ Jesus died for us. Right? It is extended. It may not be accepted, but his love is extended to every human being, regardless of what they've done. Now, it's up to them to accept it, but it is extended by Jesus to every single person. And a person's sin should never, ever, ever keep me from loving them. So racism, our, our country's talking about this a lot. Racism is a sin, I don't even really get what the debate's about. <laughs> the, the Bible is clear that racism is a sin, and we are called to love the victim, that to all, of the, that all those in our country that have been hurt and pushed down and ostracized because of racist intent. We are called to love the victim, but we are also called, and this is hard, we are called to love the racist. You are not called to agree with the racist. You shouldn't but you and I are called to love them. You are called to love the liar. You are called to love the thief. You are even called to love the politician. You're called to love the Democrat. You are called to love the Republican. Even when the views that they have you consider to be wrong and sinful and bad for, their, for, bad for the country, you are not called to agree. You are called to love. 
You are called to love the person who struggles with their sexuality, not because you agree with all the choices they're making, but because this is our calling from God. While we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were still sinners, he loved us. And so we have to figure out, and I think the church can lead the way on this, we are called to figure out how do I love the person I disagree with? How do I love the person that I don't agree with their moral choices? How do I love the person that's on a different side of the political spectrum than I am? How do I love them? And I don't have all the answers, but I know it's worth the fight. Because we are called, a person's sin does not exclude them from our love. We, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called sons of your Father in heaven. That we are called to love everybody. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's a story, this word uh, covers in the Greek, it's not used a ton in your New Testament, but there is a really interesting time where it's used. It's in Matthew 10. Uh, Jesus is talking to uh, his disciples, and he decides to get away from the crowd, and they get on a boat, and they're going to go across the sea. And uh, while they're going across the sea, this furious storm comes up, uh, kind of out of nowhere. And, and the Bible says that the waves are sweeping over the boat. The waves are covering the boat. This is the same word uh, that is used in our text. Jesus will later, he's asleep during this. He'll later wake up, he'll calm the storm with a single word, but this is the word. It describes waves crashing over a vessel. And if I could use this metaphor, this is what our culture needs right now. We need the wave of God's love to crash over our culture so that they can see a love that is revolutionary. They can see a love that is different. They can see a love that is not just extended to those I agree with, but instead is, it is extended to every single person. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the hypocrites and the pagans do that. We are called to be different. We are called to love those that we disagree with, and our culture needs this wave to take over us. And you and I, we are invited to be a part of that wave, to, to leave here and say, man, I'm going to love the Democrat. I'm going to love the Republican. This week, I'm going to love the, the person uh, at, at my work that I, I know their lifestyle and I disagree with their lifestyle, but I'm going to find a way to love them and, and treat them with the grace of God. And I, I'm not going to cover up my views. I'm not going to state my views, but I'm going to find a way to do it in a loving and kind way. Love covers a multitude of sins. This love offers hospitality. And we often think about hospitality as uh, having someone over for dinner, uh, which has been hard during the pandemic, but it's also just kind of a lost art in our culture. I've read a couple studies on this recently that um, we have, as a nation, we have substituted social media for actually being social. Right? So a lot of us have more Facebook friends than we've ever had before, but we're also as lonely as we've ever been before. You and I were created for meaningful and live relationships. Digital just doesn't quite accomplish it. I think the pandemic's kind of taught us this, right? That those of you that are here today, um, you know that there's just something about being live with people. Right, right. There's just something different about it and, and, and good. Um, and that being said, I don't think that's what this verse is getting at in totality. Did you notice what it says? It says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. How do you interpret that text? I think there's two ways you can interpret it. One is that I'm going to offer hospitality 
and I'm gonna do it without grumbling. That in other words, that I'm not gonna complain about having to clean my house. I'm not gonna complain about having to cook the meal. All of this is kind of annoying, but I'm not gonna complain about cleaning the house or cooking the meal. Let's be honest, Cheryl's cooking the meal. I'm not gonna subject you to that. Um, I'm not gonna complain about Cheryl having to cook the meal. Um, I'm not gonna complain about having my kids sit at the table and, and eat and all this stuff. I'm not gonna complain about offering hospitality and that's one way to read the text. There is another way to read the text. And that is that we don't want the basis of our hospitality and our socializing to be grumbling, right? That's the other way you could read that sentence, that we don't want the basis of the hospitality to be grumbling. So we get together with a group of friends and every time we get together, we are complaining about the president or Congress or we get together with the group from church and we find ourselves kind of devolving into complaining about kind of church gossip or church stuff going on, or we get together and we complain about a certain friend that isn't present, that the purpose of the hospitality has become grumbling. And I think that's very possible that what Peter is uh, 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 telling us to move away from, that as you're getting together with people, as you're socializing, don't have the purpose of the get together to be, don't, don't allow it to become and be grumbling. Because here's the, here's the problem with it. As the text unfolds, the purpose of the hospitality, and when you read the whole context, is the expression of love. So when I get together with you, I don't want to spend all my time bellyaching about politics when I could be encouraging you. I don't want the, to spend all my time complaining about the state of the world when I could be complimenting you and your delicious meal. I don't want all the focus of our conversation to be elections when the focus of the conversation could be love. So I've had multiple occasions in my life, and you've probably had this too, where I have realized that a relational group has become this way. That's like, man, every time we get together in this small group of people, we're like complaining about the president or Congress or whatever. I, I mean, uh, church stuff, whatever. And it's so convicting to me when I realize that. Here's the other thing. It's super easy to change. That you change the subject. Uh, and, and if they won't allow you to change the subject, here's exactly, I'm gonna give you into the screen exactly what you're able to say. That, hey, I've noticed that whenever we get together, we are complaining about fill in the blank, and I think we should talk about something different. I am telling you from personal experience, you will only have to do that once. They will feel so awkward, and they will never do it again. I, I promise you, you only have to do that once, and then it's gonna cre create some space where conversation to go in a more loving, helpful place. You're talking about your family, something funny your kids did. You're talking about stuff at work and, and encouraging one another. You're, you're, and, and, and it's not that it's wrong to talk about politics. I love talking about it, as a matter of fact. But we don't want to see the purpose of our hospitality, the purpose of our relationships to become grumbling. We want to allow space for love. And we want to allow space for encouragement. We want to allow space um, for, for, for good conversation to unfold. This love causes us, all right, next, all right, I think we got two more, yep, uh, to serve one another as stewards of God's grace. I love this image, that you have been given a gift. You have, and that the purpose of that gift, God has given you a gift, and the purpose of that gift is that that, gifts, that gift carries God's grace and God's love to others. That's why God gave you the gift, 
that you have, whatever it is. He says, this is like a vessel that is gonna carry my love and carry my grace to the people in your life. So like your minivan is intended to carry your kids from one event to the next, like Wi-Fi is intended to carry Netflix to your phone for your entertainment, like a spoon is meant to carry ice cream from the bowl to your lips, this is what your gift is. It is that spoon that is carrying the rocky road to your mouth. I'm gonna get some rocky road later today, I think. Um, This is what your gift is. He says, man, I have given you a gift and the purpose of it, almost the sole purpose of it, is to carry my grace and my love to others. So man, if if you have a way with words, love people with your words. If you have a spirit of generosity, love people with your generosity. If you have a heart for service, Love others by meeting their needs. God has given you a gift. He has. And the purpose of it is to carry his love and to carry his grace to others. Last one. This love causes us to speak. We speak like God speaks. So think about how God speaks. All right? Think about uh, creating the world, that when he speaks, he gives life. Think about the law, that when he speaks, he shows us a better way of living. Um, that he spoke the loudest, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He spoke the loudest when he sent his son, Jesus. That was God's voice, in my opinion. That's when his voice was the loudest, is when Jesus came to earth. And we live in a day and age where we all have a voice. It's fabulous, isn't it? It can be. And the voices are getting louder and louder and louder. And like the passage I read earlier from Paul, the, the warning passage, uh, what, what Paul says is some of those voices in our culture are, are going, as, as time unfolds, they're going to become increasingly unholy. They're going to become increasingly boastful, increasingly angry. Not so with you. And not so with me. Because we have been changed and transformed by the greatest loving moment in the history of the world. We have been changed and transformed by the love of our Savior, and it changes our voice, at least it should. Let me give you a question to ask. This is a question I've been trying to ask myself. Before I post, before I conversate, one of the problems with me, I talk like I preach too fast, right? My words get ahead of my thoughts. It has gotten me in trouble so often in my life. It's like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. It's like my words got a little ahead of my thinking. Um, it happens literally every Sunday. Um, that it's like, I shouldn't have said that. My, if I'd been able to think, I wouldn't have said that. But my words are moving faster than my thoughts. And so I really need this kind of lesson I, I thought about this week. And here's the, here's the question I'm starting to ask myself. Does this represent the voice of God well? What I'm about to post, what I'm about to say, the joke that I'm about to make, right? The teasing I'm about to do, does this represent the voice of God well? Or is it just something I wanna say, right? Is it something I just wanna say because I'm angry or because I think it's funny or because I wanna make a point, because I wanna make a point? Does it represent the voice of God well or is it just something I wanna say? See, God has a unique voice, 
If you want to know what the voice of God sounds like, study Jesus. That's when his voice was the loudest. It is, the wor- it is his words become flesh. And so just study Jesus and then ask yourself, is, is what I'm about to say, does this sound like Jesus? Does this look like Jesus? Is this what Jesus would say? And if it's not, I'm trying to dial it back. Oh, but it's really funny. No, it doesn't matter that it's really funny. It doesn't represent the voice of God well. It makes the point with such precision. It doesn't matter if it doesn't represent the voice of God well. And so that's a question I'm just trying to ask myself. Here's, here's Peter's point. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. We are not panicked. We are not self-consumed. We are committed to loving one another radically and passionately, just like Jesus. There's such a better question than when. I want to know when to. And the better question is how. How should I live in light of the coming of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his example of love. May we love the way we have been loved. May our voice represent your voice well. May our service uh, carry your love and grace to others. May our love cover a multitude of sins, that, that a person's sinfulness doesn't keep us from loving them. And that's hard and it's messy and we don't know how to do it, but you do. So will you show us when the mess becomes real? Would you give us the wisdom to know how to navigate this with our brother, with our sister, with our parent, with our child, with our coworker, with our fellow church member, that when the mess of this hits real, when the mess of this gets real, that you will give us your wisdom in double doses and we'll know what to say and we'll know what to do to both to not lose sight of our holiness and to not lose sight of our love. Help us to do it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're gonna receive communion together. It's under your chair. The bread represents Jesus' body. The juice represents his blood. And this is, this is the loving moment. This is when Jesus, thankfully, I talk about the mess in my prayer, that Jesus didn't run from the mess, right? He engaged the mess. And so we're not, we're not gonna run away from the mess. When life gets messy, it's like, I disagree. There's gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna need to remember this throughout the rest of the year. I disagree with that politician. I disagree with that person from another generation. I I disagree with the choice that they're making. This is when the mess becomes real. But we, like our Savior, we don't run from messes. We engage messes. And we try to figure it out, what it looks like to love one another despite our differences. And so Jesus sets the example for us. This is the end of our service. So take a few minutes, just reflect on his love. Ask him to guide you and direct you in your love. And then whenever you're ready, take the bread, take the juice, and then you're dismissed for the day. Thank you so much for coming. God bless you and have a great week.